very first podcast of this series was about the imperial Chinese debt. And that was our very first podcast because that's a topic that Mark and I have a love-hate relationship with. And we had some of our favorite guests on that episode, Tracy Alloway of Bloomberg, uh, Lee Bukait, the guru of sovereign debt, Alex Zhao, one of our former students who had written a wonderful paper about the Chinese sovereign debt from the early part of the 20th century. But wonderful though they all are, today we have maybe the leading expert in the world who we did not know about until very recently on these debts. And she has a fabulous book coming out soon and has a really interesting article. And I'm so excited that Elia Zhang from the University of Rochester History Department is here to talk to us today about this incredible story. So Elia, we're, we're so thrilled that we get to expose your work to the wider world. So welcome to our podcast. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, and thank you so much for the opportunity. Not at all. Uh, we're the ones who are learning and uh, we're about to start our sovereign debt classes. So th this, this will be, this along with some of your work will be a wonderful start to show our students how politics, history, economics, and sort of global events all get mixed up in this wonderful world that we are all obsessed with. Now, if we could start reading your work, I realized uh, how little I know about the Chinese debt. Often when we talk about the Chinese sovereign debt that was defaulted upon, we, and I, I'm referring to myself as being at fault, uh, often, talk about it, <laughs> often talk about it as sort of a single default happening after the communists take power and uh, a single set of debt, uh, debts, uh, which are usually the bonds, but uh, it's a much more complex story, I understand from your work. And I was wondering if we could start with your telling us about what constitutes the, the set of debt that gets defaulted upon by the communists. And maybe after that, we can talk about the reasons for the defaults and when they happen. So when it comes to the history of Chinese sovereign debts, and then uh, it's not just one entity. We have to think about China's, modern China's sovereign borrowing and uh, from the Opium War and all the way to the communist takeover is a is 95 years in making. So specifically, China took its very first sovereign debt in 1853, when the government was trying to suppress the Taiping Rebellion. And then the last one was taken in 1948 from uh, the American Export and Import Bank. So it's 90 years, and during these 90 years, a total of 733 individual loans were taken. And those loans were contracted between 143 Chinese entities and then 231 foreign creditors. So uh, should I go on or should I stop here? You are going to have to lead us in part because you know so much more about the details of the what I understand to be a really much more complicated uh, debt stock than I had ever anticipated. So I guess um, if I was gonna gonna ask for you to sort of gradually steer us in a in a particular direction, it, it would be uh, explaining uh, how. The, as I understand it, the United States wound up missing out on a lot of the lending to China and yet still 
winds up, you know, despite this history where the U.S. is involved and then not involved and then involved again, still winds up being, as I understand it, the both the largest creditor, but also the the creditor who did the worst. So um, to the extent you're looking for a direction to take two ignoramuses like us, um, that's certainly a, a subject I'm interested in. Yes, sure. Yeah, it's it's great that we 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 can talk about specifically, you know, the relate the borrowing relationship between the United States and China, because that's what my book is about. So, so see, first is that you know what are what are China's sovereign debts? Seven hundred and thirty three loans, and from whom? You know, you can say from two hundred and thirty one foreign creditors, or you want to simplify it, it says specifically from seven creditor nations: United States, Great Britain. Japan, France, Russia, Germany, and Belgium. So out of this, at the, at the end of the day, and we ask how many amounts were borrowed, that's about $4.5 billion. And then how many amounts were repaid, it's about $2.2 billion. In other words, in 1949, um, during China's third and last sovereign default, and China had China owed foreign creditors a total of $2.3 billion, which is about 51% of the lending total, means for every $2 China borrowed, $1 was not repaid. Elia, um, if, if I may, can you tell us, so you mentioned a few seconds ago that there, the third default in 1949, can you give us the bare bones of the first, the second, and the third default? So that there, there are these three defaults, and China is able to go back to the the markets, or at least able to do sovereign to sovereign borrowing, or via some Exim Bank or other official sector mechanisms, but. Uh, three defaults, each of which was uh, likely uh, different in terms of its rationale. Yes, of course. So um, the first default, and then I think it's actually kind of, we're, we're related to the odious debts uh, topic later, because then we are talking about whether those debts are odious. The one thing I like to mention is that all the way until 1930, all the way, all the way until 1913, China is considered a blue chip borrower, you know, in the world. It means that China never defaulted any of its foreign loans. It pay, it duly pay all its bonds. However, after 1915, China sank into the warlord period. So we are looking at roughly 14, you know, 14 cabinets, you know, replace each other in the span of the next 16 years. So it was in this chaos. In year 1921, one of the cabinet yeah, decided to default its foreign loans. But that default, we, we shall say, it's what we call partial default. Because in the China case, there is one kind of loans is that's you, you, can, you can always never default it, which is the loans that are secured on maritime customs. And we know that the Chinese maritime customs was not run by the Chinese. It was run by an international body led by the British since the late 19th century. So the class of loans that were secure maritime, maritime customs, they were paid duly throughout 1921. So 1921, what the roughly two thirds of the loans went into default means the loans that were not secured on maritime customs. And also some of the loans that were, they are secured on the salt tax. So that's a 1921 default. But long warlord period finally came to an end in 1928 when the Chinese Nationalist Party reunified China. So China was again under one political entity who was determined to clean up you know, its, 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 its reputation. So the Republican government, they inherited, they officially inherited these loans. They temporarily suspended, but then they work. They eventually work with all the creditors, you know, yeah, have a debt restructuring plan. So repayment started roughly in year 1933 and went all the way to 1939. And why it stopped in 1939? Because Japan invaded China in 1937. 
And what happened is that um, when Japan, within six months, Japan took over half of China and all and, and all of the maritime customs ports. So, so the Republican China literally went broke because for Republican China, the two most important source of revenue, number one, maritime customs, now is gone, all in Japanese hands. And then number two, the salt tax, which right now was be, well, become quite little because it lost it lost part half of its territory. So that's why in 1939, in the midst of fighting against Japan and China, had the second sovereign default. And this one is very interesting. It's almost 98% of the loans went into default, except one or two American loans that China took in 1933. So that's a 1939 default. Oh, wow. Why, why, why did the American loans? Is it because they were China, um, or at least the, the government that was yes. in charge so of much of China was dependent on the U.S. for military assistance uh, during the war with Japan? That was part of the rationale. Because after 1921, you know, you don't default without consequence. So after 1921, when China defaulted its foreign loans, essentially the China Consortium, you know, the four nation China Consortium put a loan embargo on China after 1921. So that's why between 21 all the way to 1933, you don't see any substantial loans going to China Ironically, that was the time, you know, throughout the night, the roaring 20s. See, that was the night, roaring 20s. So that was the time when the entire world was in the landing spree, but trying to completely missed out, you know, this decade. And by 1933, United States became the very first major nation that offered a sizable loan to China and sort of helped China to fix its, uh, its credibility. So that's why in 1939, also in 1939, United States is the only country, you know, compared to France, compared to Britain, compared to Belgium, United States is the only country that was not in war and was actually in, um, had the capacity to extend some economic assistance to China. So that's why out of all the loans, you know, China continued to pay the two American cotton and wheat loans that was contracted in 1933. And then through, as I understand it, through the 1940s, you see this evolution of the lending relationship between the United States and China, sort of starting with the wartime alliance and then sort of drifting past the war into the period of characterized by civil war in China. So, so tell us more about that, the lending during that period. So... That's why, um, so when I finished my research, uh, I did my research in all of China's foreign loans and 70, uh, 733 of them. And then, so it's, um, it's, it's kind of interesting because like for me, um, like I see each loan like a living being. It has a birthday, it has a life trajectory and then it dies at some point. <laughs> so then, uh, but then the lifespan is different. Some loans just two months old. Yeah, and then they got redeemed, they got closed, book closed. But some loan, like the Huguan loan, the, the subject, the, the, the 1979 Jackson trial, we know that it lasted forever, all the way till today, the ghosts are still lingering. So um, so when I when I did my numbers, you know, I spent entire year just trying to get the numbers right. When I get the numbers, and finally when I closed the numbers and, and I sort of compiled a mini biography of, of all these loans. So now I'm sitting on uh, 733 mini biographies. It's as if, you know, in my room, I see like 733 ghosts floating, yeah, all floating around me, and each eager to tell a story there. But the problem is then there's so many stories, but then what story to tell them? So I go back to the numbers and I try to make sense. I try to find a pattern of the numbers to see what's the most important thing out of these numbers. And then I settled on what we call the principal redemption rate. In other words, how much money was paid back at the end of the day out of all the credit nations, which one, you know, lost the most money. And I find out that was the United States. So United <laughs> States, and then it was literally modern China's largest, longest, and most disappointing creditor. So Elia, um, the, the, I don't want us to lose the part of 
lending, particularly from the United States, between 1939 and 1949. And so there were a bunch of loans during that period as well, sort of the war-related loans. And for those of us who teach in law schools, especially if we've taught uh, securities regulation. One of the first cases one generally teaches in securities regulation is, I, I think it's a, the Chinese Benevolent Association loan that wasn't registered properly. And so there was a question within the US uh, whether or not it violated US securities laws. And when one digs into it, it's an interesting story about how the Chinese government at the time was trying as part of the war effort to raise funds from overseas uh, Chinese and here in this case from immigrants who were in the United States sending money back. And so I imagine that the, the, char the character of that last part of lending is quite different from the imperial lending or the nationalist lending or even the warlord period. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that too, before we get to the big default, the big and the third default. Yes, and then and I think you are, you are asking exactly the right question. It's so we can say, you know, um, the American lending to modern China is what we call, I feel it's schizophrenic meaning that United States was actually the very first one to lend to China back in 1853 and then 1859. But then the American creditors essentially missed out the entire rest of the 19th century. And then also, you know, almost the first 20 years, yeah, for 20, 30 years of the 20th century. And however, just in this last 10 years from 1939 to 1949, dollar loans to China almost had what we call a great leap forward. You know, in Chinese history, we have this movement that Chairman Mao launched in 1958. It's called a great leap forward. It means that if we walk day and night and we can catch up, you know, with the United States and Britain within 10 years. So, um, so in this lending, so the decade of 1939 to 1949, we saw a great leap forward of American lending to China and what are those loans? Those are they're, they're famous ones. For instance, land lease. Land lease is one of the most well-known one. And then also the UNRRA, the relief loan. And then also the, the American Congress, the 500 million cash loans to China. So out of the 112 American loans yeah, that China received throughout the entire modern period, there are only about, about 20. 2020, actually 25 to 27 came from this decade. But those 25, 27 loans accounted to 90% of American lending total to China. And that's later, that's, that's where the China defaulted. When, when modern China defaulted, when the communist China defaulted in 1949, that's the biggest chunk that defaulted, the American loans. And Elia, can you give us a sense um, uh, before we go into break, uh, about how those loans were divided up over the course of the decade. It seems to me that when we start thinking about some of the efforts to enforce these loans, um, maybe there are interesting distinctions to be drawn between some of the, the sort of lending earlier in the decade uh, and then some of the lending later in the decade in the latter half of the 1940s. Do, do we know sort of how much of the debt was um, uh, incurred in the, in the first half of the decade versus the second? And also, if I can just sneak a second question in before break, I would love it if you would tell us a little bit about the effect on the Chinese treasury of the nationalist flight to, to Taiwan across the strait. Okay. I know there, there's a sort of interesting story about the sort of the gold bullion going across the strait um, and a variety of other effects. 
Yeah, so in terms of American loans to China between 1939 to 1949, and then roughly we need to see um, from 1939 to 1941, so those groups are what we call the pre-per-harbor loan, pre, uh, pre loans. And so those are smaller but hardworking loans. And uh, they are contracted as real loans and China diligently pay off every cent of it. So in other words, all the loans that were extended between 1939 to 1941, December 1941, were all paid off. But then the Pearl Harbor took happen. So overnight, China became an indispensable ally, you know, for United States in the Pacific theater. So after that, sadly, is that a number of political loans that defy financial logic rushed into China. And then so those, those loans, including the cash loan, including the currency loan, including the $5 million, you know, uh, credit loans. And so that streak did not stop all the way until 1945. And after 1945, and there was the, the it became more rational. Yeah, after 1945, it became more, more rational because between 1945 to 1948, and most of the loans will come from the American Export Import Bank meaning that China really need to lay out the terms of collateral. So yeah, if we saw the, the most irrational one, uh, it was the ones that were extended between 1942 to 1945. Well, and thanks, that, so. Yeah. thanks so. And that's in the amount, together in the amount of billion, close to a billion. So, so let's, um, let's move into break and then we can, uh, when we come back, maybe move into the slightly more modern period and think about uh, uh, the efforts to enforce some of these loans. So, Elia, where we had left off, we were um, right in position to talk about the 1949 uh, default after the the communists come to power. And I think there's a, there's a really simplistic narrative that prevails in, uh, in this country, at least among, among many people that I was kind of indirectly alluding to with my question, not very clearly at the, at the sort of end of the first half. But so, um, the simplistic story is, you know, the communists take over and they have no interest in repaying any of the, the uh, outstanding debt, both because some of it was used to actively repress them, but also because it's associated with this long history of Western imperialism. There's never any intent to repay. And the story, as I understand it, is so much more complicated than that, having to do both with the the empty Chinese treasury that uh, the communist government inherited, but also developments in the United States, um, and in particular this white paper that you talk about uh, in your the the uh, in the the book and the chapter that we read. And so I'm wondering if you can just take us through that that history and the the decision to default in 1949. Great. Um, so here's what happened in 1949. So first in 1949, starting in February, and uh, the, the nationalist was carrying out its major retreat to Taiwan. And then a big part of the retreat is what we call the moving of the precious metals. So in totals using American, uh, American warships and also American airplanes, yeah, the nationalist party moved from mainland to China a total of 100, you know, 180 million ounces of gold, and then uh, 66, 133 million ounces of silver, and then also $70 million in cash. In other words, is that the communists won the war and they took over China, but they only sold empty vaults because those vaults has been systematically emptied. Throughout can I just can I just ask a clarification uh, before you get back to answering this? When you say that the they use the American uh, ships and other equipment to move the precious metals, were the Americans 
actively involved in helping this movement or was it just that they had planes and ships from the Americans that they had bought before since they, you know, thinking about it as a lawyer, this, this seems rather important in thinking about where you attach blame. Yes. So no. So we're not talking about, you know, American army send out its pirates to help the nationalists move gold bars, but, um, China doesn't produce any airplanes or warships. So those warships and airplanes were all part of the American land list package. And then the American land list package um, extended all the way from 1942 to 1947. So I wonder whether that you, answer your question. So it, those are American warships, American airplanes, but it's not part of American military. Yes, yes, you, you did. Uh, and I think we should get back to um, the reasons for the default and then the white paper. Sorry for distract. Sorry for taking us off on a tangent. No, this is this is actually right on the point. So then we'll ask the question, if China was as broke, you know, as in 1939, have to default all these foreign loans, then why suddenly in 1949, we are looking at millions and millions ounces of gold and silver? So where did, they, did the money come from? those money come from American loans to China. So a large chunk of American loans to China, especially the irrational ones I talked about after 1942, were used to purchase precious metal bars. And then when the nationalists was losing China and they moved all of them to Taiwan. But now the communist, let's just say, you know, Chairman Mao, Mao in Beijing, yeah. So they were sitting in Beijing yeah, in, the, in four, 1949. First, they are looking at empty vault. And then meanwhile, the RMB, uh, the currency under the communist regime, you know, because there was no precious metal in the vault to back up. So uh, the RMB was, 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 was going through rampant inflation. And on top of this, in August 1949, the US State Department published a 1,000 page long China white paper. This is the longest white paper the US State Department ever published because later United States fought the Vietnam War. But if you look at the two white paper about the Vietnam War and together they're just about two, one or 200 pages. But the one on China runs 1000 pages long. And the white paper was published for one reason is to explain to the American public that why we lost China and it's not our fault. The sad irony here is the majority, the 99.9% .9 of the pages of the China White Paper are talking about what we call you know, politics, friendships. And there was also, there was only a small portion of it and which was put in appendix sections had a sum total of how much China owe United States or how much the nationalist China owe United States. And then if you go all the way to that, it's the, the price tag is $1.2 billion. That's in August 1949. And so I think what the American diplomats, they didn't quite understand at the time is that the communists being as broke as they are, the appendix section is the first place they will go to, not the previous 900 beautiful pages of narrative. It's that table, that number. And then when they see, suddenly see a $1.1 billion and they realize those, those money were used to purchase gold bars that they are gone, to pay for the American, the expenses, to, to pay for the American warships, American airplanes, and none of them belong to uh, the communist. And then third, and also to pay for, you know, the tons, hundreds of tons of ammunition they were being consumed into the civil war. In other words, none of this left, but China was left, you know, uh, the new socialist regime was left with a $1.2 billion bill. And my, so, so my feeling is that it was a knee-jerk reaction yeah, for so Beijing Elliot, to suddenly Elliot. declare sovereign default in 1949. So this, this, this idea of a prior government borrowing and then taking away the resources that it purchases using the borrowing and taking them literally off to an offshore haven is the classic odious debt story. And by 1949, we already have discussions of 
the concept of odious debt in the international law literature because we have events that occur with the Soviets and the sort of post-Soviet, uh, the, the post-imperialist Russian scholars articulate this idea and it's picked up in other international law treatises. So the, the, you talked about this knee-jerk reaction and I, I am wondering, and I, I think I've seen references uh, to the fact that at least in Chinese um, local discussions in the papers, you see the invocation of this concept of odious debt. Is that right? I mean, is that do, do they? Is there a belief that it's justified under international law that these these debts should not be paid? Mm, I think we have to think about month to month development. Yeah, and then so in nineteen. You know, August 1949, no, actually, you know, by February 1949, and the nationalists retreated to Taiwan, the, the vows are empty. And then um, August 1949, the China White Paper was published, huge price tag, $1 billion price tag bill to, to the to new regime. And then October, it was established. And then the next year, the Korean War broke out. So I think at the time, it was that, that left a new regime, you know, who was actually still trying to first, trying to uh, clean up the other corners of China, and then second, try to control the rampant inflation, and third, immediately have to go into another war. That left the, the new social regime very little time to really ponder its new role in the international legal community there. And so is that, there's, um, I take from you that there's no real evidence of discussion of either odious debt or the legality of the the loans that had been made. It, it, it's, I'm just, is that right? Yes. Oh, I see. So, um, yes, yeah. So my, my answer is because I trying to dig. Yeah, I actually tried to go back to that moment and I read all the, the, the newspapers. I read all the official documents, just those few months. I can only obtain just a few documents which states that this, in a very vague, uh, vague turn, just say, this is the burden of colonial past. This no, yeah, this is the burden. This is the, the ultimate, you know, prime example of imperialist invasion of China. So yes, so we want, we want to put it behind us. So Elliot, so, before we go to the modern era and the litigation, the fascinating litigation in the Jackson case that you've written about, can I ask about a rather obscure set of debts that Mark and I have received uh, angry emails about after we did our very first podcast, and we didn't really even know about these, but they sound uh, fascinating, which are the debts that were incurred in Manchuria during uh, the Japanese occupation. My uh, understanding from these emails, and again, all I can find is uh, stuff on Wikipedia, uh, is that there are outstanding debts from that period that were incurred by what one might call puppet governments of the Japanese mm -hmm. that have not been paid back either. Mm. So when you talk about so when you talk about the Manchurian debts, and then the only thing I can think of is can will be borrowed either by the South Manchurian Railway, which is a Japanese entity that had been established in Manchuria since um, since 1907. Yeah, so, so South Manchurian Railway Company, they, they borrow, you know, they issue treasury bonds and they, are, they also borrow for the United States a lot. But those shall fall into the category of Japanese loans because it's a Japanese entity. Then it's, there is also a possibility that the Manchukuo, the puppy regime, which was established after January 1934, so there is a possibility that the Manchukuo issue sent treasury bonds. I never seen any of them, but if you, um, if you consider that it's something you, you have to have um, have evidence, you have to have files, you know, means it happened. 
And then the Manchukuo files, you know, unfortunately, um, mostly, you know, when it comes to those, mostly were, were lost because one, um, Manchuria was not taken over by the Chinese. Manchuria was taken, taken over by the, the Soviets after August 15th, 1945. And then entities like the, you know, the South Manchurian Railways were not returned, were not handed over to China you know, several, until several years later. So in this time, a lot of documents you know, never surfaced again. I tried to find them and they never surfaced again. So yes, so if, um, if you look at you know, any Manchurian loans, I don't know exactly the time, but if there is a precious window, if the Manchurian loans that falls in the window between December 30th, 1928 to September 18th, 1931, and yes, in theory, because during that short time period, it is a province, you know, it is official province of the Chinese Republican government. So any loans during that time shall be considered part of nationalist China's sovereign debt. But then if it happened after September 18th, 1931, when the Japanese invaded and took over Manchuria, and that, you know, in my opinion, you know, for more likely under what we call the Japanese loans, Japanese borrowing. So as we move towards the end here, maybe it's a, a good time to transition into a little bit of the background with, about the Jackson versus the China lawsuit, which I found so fascinating. I had known some of it, but, um, uh, but the story you tell is so much deeper and richer than anything I had heard. Can you just give us the backstory for how that lawsuit came to be? I mean, as, as I understand it, it's sort of a, a board engineer who wants to invest a surprisable amount, a surprising amount of money in defaulted debt. It's basically a play on Jimmy Carter being able to uh, broach some kind of settlement with the Chinese government. It's this super super weird, interesting story. And so I'm, I'm hoping you can give us a bit more of the, of the detail there. Yeah, so the story started in 19, actually roughly in 1976. And then, so we're talking about, you know, we're talking about Jackson, it's a Russell Jackson, a forensic engineer in Alabama. And then, so he, he, he read Barron's, you know, the guide for investment investors. And so he read an article and then essentially, saying that um, defaulted sovereign bonds, you know, can't bring you, uh, can bring you, you know, unexpected rainfall because both Germany and Japan defaulted their bonds, but then they come back and pay it, you know, in full amount. So that's why Jackson pulled his money, not just him, and also his wife, his, his cousins, you know, the nine of them, they pulled their money together and purchased a large number of China's, China's imperial bonds. In this he spent case, like $10,000, right? In, yes. in the 1970s, just all right. Yes, yes. <laughs> Weird, so, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. I just find this so, so fascinating. And that too in Alabama, like who goes to Alabama to file a federal lawsuit against a foreign government? But this is all happening in Alabama. But then, uh, so then they, they, they waited they waited for the United States to officially recognize China. Because even though Nixon went to China in, in February, 1972, and then, but Jimmy Carter did not officially recognize China until January 1st, 1979. So at the beginning, the first half in the early months of 1979, that China and United States, they already settled disputed clans. And those disputed clans were a result were a legacy of the Korean War after the Korean War broke out, you know, in late 1950. And then the American froze Chinese assets in the United States and China froze and confiscated American assets. So, so those clans were settled at the beginning of 1979. And then when Jackson realized that these imperial bombs were not included yeah, in any of those settlements, he tried to contact, he tried to, you know, he tried to contact the Chinese embassy, had no reply, he tried to contact the American State Department, received no reply. So then, uh, so he started calling around, uh, find a lawyer, and then they, they sued China in late 1979. They brought, uh, they brought China to court. So this, I mean, the, the story of this 
lawsuit uh, and how it evolves is incredible, but we won't uh, trouble you to talk about the story of the lawsuit, but I, I, am, I am particularly interested in uh, your narrative about how the lawsuit, how uh, the Chinese government reacts to this filing and what it does. I, I, I think I remember re reading uh, that uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, is just uh, livid about this. Uh, and then, um, you know, George Shultz uh, files a statement of interest of the US government uh, on behalf of the Chinese and uh, there, there is uh, this lawyer, Jean Thoreau, who, who doesn't really work for the Chinese government as yet, uh, from Baker and McKinsey, who steps in uh, to, to soothe things. Or, uh, and the U.S. government really helps in making the lawsuit go away. Yes. So in the end, um, so you, you, you are the you are, you are absolute expert on this and then so I'm just um, so I'm going to just trying to volunteer a little bit and then you, you can tell me whether you know my uh, my thinking is is right so when I look at it to see in the end where did this lawsuit go away because uh, in 1982 you know the Alabama judge did did had a default ruling against China and ordered Beijing to pay uh, 41 million dollars to the, the bondholders of you know bondholders of of Huguan loans like Jackson. So then it went away. And I think first is because um, the Reagan years, you know, the Reagan at the time that was in China, United States, and then they would really try to rebuild relationship. And uh, so the, the US department, and then also especially the Secretary of State Schwartz, you know, and then each made an unusual move. They actually supplied the state of interest to the court, and then uh, stating that, and literally, yeah, that the, the first stating that this is um this this so this this is part uh, you know this is part of the, the burden that have been defaulted multiple times, which is does not fall upon the shoulder of the People's Republic of China. But I think that's one of the reason you know uh, you know the judge make the decision. But there is also another technical reason, which I almost think is coincident, because. We know that um, the Tate letter was issued in 1952, and, and the Tate letter was considered the predecessor, or we call, you know, the, the, the beginning, you know, the beginning of, of questioning into absolute sovereign immunity. So the Hu Guanlong was contracted in May 1911, and the maturity date was set as 40 years. In other words, the Hu Guanlong, if it runs its all full course, you know, will expired. In, in May 1951, just a few months before the Tate letter. And so I think that was, that technical details also helped Beijing to, um, to get away you know, from this default ruling there because it, it happened before the Tate letter. Elliot, as we, as we leave, um, can I just shift gears a bit to the very modern era? Uh, I hope this is not an unfair question. I know it's not really uh, a theme in the book, but what rekindled Me Too's and my interest in this subject uh, was the fact that even now, and especially during Donald Trump's presidency, there was all of this uh, interest in whether Trump could use the outstanding Chinese debt um, held by Americans as some kind of political bargaining tool and all kinds of um, you know, people beating the drum about how this was gonna be a great investment by Chinese debt. Uh, there's gonna be either a political settlement or maybe some possible legal recourse and Donald Trump is gonna lead the way and all of this struck me both as sort of nonsense, but also um, many of the people who were involved struck me as sort of odious, but, but nevertheless, it was, it caught a lot of attention. And, you know, there, there were people within the Trump administration who were at least talking about it, um, whether they took it seriously or not. I'm wondering if all of this kind of discussion and excitement 
uh, in the United States, and especially when Trump was in power and any kind of kooky thing it seemed like could happen. Was that something that had any kind of resonance? Do you know in China, did the government view this as something to to react to? Or was it just like, this is so crazy, we're not even going to dignify it by um, by commenting or even uh, even really paying it any mind? I think first thing is I didn't see any official comments from it. And then one thing I would like to bring to um, yeah, bring to your attention is that the Chinese, in, t- in terms of you know China's past borrowing, the Chinese government is very very transparent about it, because um, this is in year essentially. I, I wonder whether this is a coincidence. You know, starting from year 1987 when the Jackson trial you know finally was resolved, and then uh, several Chinese state institute the first historical archives, the second historical archives, and then the Ministry of Finance. And then they got a group of 60 to 70 experts together. And they spent the next eight years literally just doing one thing, which is they went to all archives, any archives they can get hold of. And then from there, they pick any pieces that are related to sovereign debts. And in total, they put together 130,000 pages of archives. And then they publish, they publish every one of them in 1990s for public use. Everyone can just buy them and then uh, do research. This is how I base my research. I, I essentially been spending entire year reading through these 130,000 pages. And then there is no hiding there. And that's how I know why so many loans were not paid back it, because it was literally just written there saying, no, the payment stopped on this date, you know, for these reasons. So my feeling is, the government respect this part of history. Yeah, so that's why they will share sources like this. It's a, it's, this is not one people can do it. We are looking at you know, the works of 60 scholars of eight years. And then, but it was treated as history that can be shared and publicized, but then shall be put behind. So yes, so I think that's why, you know, so far with all the noise, excitement United States, when I read a Chinese, newspapers and any other news agents, I didn't see any official comments on it. Oh yeah, thank you so much. This has been such a treat for us to get to talk to someone like you who knows so much. And my hope is that this is just the first of many occasions on which we'll have you on our Mm -hmm. podcast since there's so much more to talk about, but, Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This was really fun for us. Thank you. Before I leave, I wonder, can I ask you a question? It's about memory. And then, so in terms of this, like, how do you see, like, I think, because as I said, as, as I was studying history, especially, you know, the history of modern China, the financial history of modern China, it is really personalities really have really matter. And then the leader's decision really mattered. You know, whether China to repay its foreign debt is, is did not come from a public vote, but come from the decision of a room, you know, a closed room. So when I look at, you know, right now, so far from all the way from 1949 to now, China already gone through five generations of leaders. And what I see is there is still a what we call adapter mentality that lingering you know, through every one of these five leadership. Because if we think about China's memory of, of, of you know, sovereign debts, it's actually still quite fresh. It's not, it did not stop in 1949. In 1949, yes, China defaulted all these American British loans, but China turned around, borrowed from the Soviet Union and duly repaid every cent of it, yeah, even during its great famine. So by, in 19, by 1965, and China was, you know, there was, there was a triumph moment for the Chinese. It was all over the news that we pay off every debt, every cent of the sovereign debts. And then by 1968, it was on the news again to say that we also pay off every cent of domestic debt. So between, 19, between 1968, 69 to 1979, and China is, an, is, is a unique existence in the world because it's probably one of the only, the only major country in the world that has neither external debt 
all internal debt. So in other words, I feel like this, this, you know, this debt mentality, yeah, it's still quite fleshed all the way until 1969. And then when you look at you know, the all five generations of Chinese leadership, their formative years all happened before 1969. And then, so that's why I wonder in the future when the next generation, when the sixth generation, when finally there will be a generation of Chinese leader who was born after 1969, have really have don't have this kind of memory, and then they will they will take a different outlook toward China's you know um, China's you know debt to pass. Wow, this is wow, fascinating. fascinating. I, I I confess I haven't uh, thought deeply about this question, or actually I haven't even thought in a shallow fashion, but. Just from Mark and my experience, leadership is incredibly important. And as you were talking, I was thinking about Argentina and how differently Argentina has treated its sovereign debt as a function of who is in power. I mean, Christina mm -hmm. Kirchner versus uh, Mauricio Macri is just completely different and it completely affects how the international markets treat them and how the IMF uh, treats them. So I don't know, Mark, if you have any uh, last thoughts on this this history, but it's been a really fun conversation. I don't particularly, but I do think it's interesting that to the extent one thinks not paying debt leads to some kind of lasting reputational Cost, and I don't know how many people really believe that anymore. But it seems like this is a about as good an example as you could come up with to to show how that the reputational costs are either not there or they're quite easy to to get past. Since I I don't think anybody, even in the United States, where feelings about debt seem to be kind of hardwired and reactionary, right? It's why so many people are still so worked up about this. Uh, I don't think anybody really thinks of it as a, as a, something that's relevant to China as a, as a borrower nation today, um, to the extent it, uh, that issue comes up. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us, Elia. We really, really appreciate it uh, and learned so much from the conversation.